0: Hello, welcome to Eyes for Ears, your Ophthalmology OCAPs and Board of View podcast. I'm your host, Ben Young. This week, we have a special guest host to do a case presentation with us to help us learn about an unusual condition, but something that is often tested on the OCAPs. I'd like to introduce my guest host this week, Ari Verder. Ari, say hi. Hi, Ben. Hi, thanks for inviting me. Ari is one of my co-senior residents right now at Yale, and he recently matched to the New England Retin Associates Fellowship um, based here in Connecticut. Congrats, Ari, and thanks for coming on the show. Thanks. Happy to be here. Okay, just to frame this episode, I'll try not to spoil what this episode is about. Ari did his great case presentation that taught our whole department a lot about this condition, so we're basically going to review it here. So, Ari, can you... Um, you can just take it away. Tell us what this patient came in with.
1: So I saw this patient in the emergency department. His real main issue was the right eye pain and really inability to see out of that right eye. Uh, This is a 40-year-old gentleman who accidentally was elbowed in the right eye about four days before the presentation. He said that he initially complained of some mild pain and moving lines in his field of vision, but the pain, he said, improved actually the following day. Uh, That being said, he had some Continued clear drainage. He didn't think much of it. Except, uh, the day of the presentation, he actually woke up with severe pain and he said that he couldn't see anything out of his right eye. And he immediately came to the emergency department. So, his past medical history was actually interesting. He said that he had Marfan syndrome. um, And associated with that, he had aortic valve replacement. uh, He was on chronic anticoagulation. He was on warfarin. So, Ben... You know, I told you that he has Marfan syndrome. What do you think? What's the first thing that you would think to look at this, uh, at this guy?
0: Yeah, I, you know, I think this is something that, if I remember right, we even cover in medical school about Marfan syndrome, which is ectopia lentis. People who've been following our podcast will remember that we did a, an episode on ectopia lentis. But to review, that's where the lens dislocates. Is that right, Ari? No, that's 100% right. Yeah. Oh. <laughs> let me say no <laughs> uh, no yeah no you can say no you could you can shut me down that's okay that's okay i'll
1: take it <laughs> no, you're right though you're right it's uh six to eighty percent of uh, marfan syndrome actually people have ectopia lentis and one thing that they tend to ask in all caps is where is the lens is it superior inferior one way that i think about it is that marfan people are really tall so imagine someone standing and opening their arms up to the air and that's essentially supratemporal. And another thing, you, I think you did think about talk about this. And urea actually have um, ectopia lentis as well. One thing I think about this, they is they look at the bladder. So urine bladder, that's essentially inferior, right? So in this case, it's supratemporal.
0: Great, that's awesome. And then in terms of other um, complications from our fans, maybe we can start from the front of the eye to the back to try to stay organized. In the front of the eye, I think they can get keratoconus, which can result in things like refractive amblyopia, and they can get strabismus as well. Then we talked about ectopia lentis, and then in the back of the eye, they can get you know significant axial myopia along with the myopia from keratoconus, and they are at a high risk for retinal detachments. Yep. Yeah, and um, really the
1: prevalence of Marfan's is about uh, one in five, depending what study you read, one in 5,000 or one in 20,000, and about 25-30% of these are new mutations. So in fact, this patient did not not have any family member with Marfan, so presumably this was a new mutation for him. It's autosomal dominant with a high penetrance, and it's FBN1 mutation, so it's essentially fibrillin 1 mutation. So keep that, keep that in mind and again. OCAPs, they do ask these kind of questions. Yeah.
0: That's great. Okay. What other what ocular history do you have? Did he have any of the, these things previously? Yeah.
1: Well, it's a great segue <laughs> to his <laughs> ocular history because he actually did have sublux lenses as a as a kid. Remember he this guy was 40 years old, so this I think this happened when he was about 9 10 or so. Um he did have cataract surgery. Um, and I believe he was left a faking for a while, and then they
0: put an ACIOL in um, later on in his life. Um, and w- why yeah. would they have to put an ACIOL? Why couldn't they just put a posterior chamber lens? Why would they have to put an anterior chamber lens in this person? No, yeah, I mean, good question. Um, well, technically, once you have ectopia lentis,
1: um, you know, all the zonules are essentially are gone. You don't really have a bag that's functional. So you have to put an ACI wall or a scleroly fixated lens. So in this case, you know, they put an ACI wall for this guy. I see. That makes sense. Um, that being said, you know, again, it goes along with exactly what you said. So these patients are highly myopic, and therefore, they are more prone to get retinal detachment. He did have a retinal detachment in the left eye, in the fellow eye, um, which was repaired. And for whatever reason, we weren't really clear on that, but he actually had secondary glycoma. And he did require a trabeculectomy in the right eye. So Mm. the the eye that's in question right now, presumably might have been the ACIOL, um, maybe causing some kind of an ox syndrome or something like that. But he did have a trabeculectomy. You know, we saw this guy again in the ED. So we just want to get some basic lab tests. Essentially, they were all um, normal, except that the INR, INR was super therapeutic at 3.4. So that might come in, you know, into question later, that's why I want to bring it up. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So again, uh, obviously your speakers are not going to be able to see this, but we have an external photo. Um, would you like to describe this, man?
0: So from what I can see, there is an interior chamber lens still in the eye. The cornea looks kind of hazy. It's hard to tell exactly from the picture. There is a bleb kind of on the top that looks like it's kind of shallow. It's not overly cystic. I don't see any blood in it. It was shallow, yeah. Yeah, it was shallow. Okay, and but you know the weird thing is the anterior chamber from this picture looks really shallow, like. You know, I mean, maybe there's like a little bit centrally, but it looks like 360 that um, the angle might be closed. What did you actually see, Ari?
1: Yeah, no, you're 100% right. It was actually very shallow. As a matter of fact, this was actually very interesting to me that the, the, the interior chamber was so shallow that um, the iris, the haptics of the ACIOL was essentially engraved on the iris. So you can actually mm. see an indentation into the iris uh, just because things were being pushed essentially.
0: Wow. Yeah. What were the, um, can you give us the kind of the basic ophthalmic vitals of this eye, like vision pressure and stuff? Yeah. So, I mean, his
1: vision was count fingers um, in the right eye. It's 20-20 corrected in the left eye. Mm. Um, his pressure was, would you say that's slightly high, 56? Oh, yeah. That's not right. Yeah, that that that's doesn't fit high. right. Yeah, well, that kind of goes with the with the pain that he had. And his fellow eye, again, it was 10. Um, his, his pupil were actually fixed in both eyes.
0: Wow. So... It sounds like this is an acute angle-closure glaucoma. What's This primary angle-closure glaucoma. Is that all this is?
1: That's... Initially, when we came in, when we saw this patient, I was like, man, you know, this fits into the description. But then when you look at his eyes a little bit better, uh, you realize that there's actually... The fellow eye actually had it much better, but he actually had an iridotomy side. Obviously, whoever did the ACI well did it properly, and they did an iridotomy side to avoid this. Hmm. Um, And the right eye... Actually, had a trace, you know, a small iridotomy side as well. So, that being said, that kind of protects you from acute angle closure. But he did have something interesting. Um, his vitreous, you know, you can actually see that through the pupil. There was something bowing towards you, something coming towards you.
0: What and the it was,
1: heck? yeah, it, it. That's exactly what we said. What the heck? What is this? It's red a little bit. Doesn't oh, quite look eye. like retina. now. But something is in the eye pushing everything interiorly. So what'd you do next? Well, we got a B-scan. We got a B-scan uh-huh. and boom. Lo and behold, what do
0: you think? So yeah, Arie's showing me a B-scan now. And I see 360 choroidal... It looks like a suprachoroidal hemorrhage. You can see that their are choroidals with some kind of layering stuff within the choroidals. And some of those choroidals are kissing, i.e. that they're opposed to each other.
1: Yep, that's exactly what we saw. It's kissing choroidals. So essentially, the, there was a significant amount of choroidal hemorrhage in the back of his eye, pushing everything anteriorly. So um, a little bit about an enemy of it. So where is the suprachoroidal space? So you got your sclera, and right underneath, or... What you say underneath well in inner mm-hmm. layer of the sclera I suppose is the choroid and there's that space there's a potential space between the choroid and the sclera and this I didn't know this but as I was preparing this I found out that that space is about 35 micron and it's important for the accommodation um, because as you accommodate apparently sclera and choroid actually slides so mm-hmm. in a way that's kind of an important space but You know, let alone that's a space um, where blood can actually fill. So that's exactly what happened to this guy. He had supracoreal hemorrhage, ton of blood uh, filled in and um, pushed everything high. So the idea behind the mechanism of this is that he probably had, um, we didn't mention into the anterior, you know, ACIOL uh, placement. So they actually did a clear corneal cut. And there was the corneal scar. You can actually see temporally. It was sidel negative, so it wasn't leaking. But presumably, what happened is that when he was elbowed, that probably opened up. He initially said that, "Oh, I'm seeing some lines." So again, presumably, um, the the chamber was actually very shallow at the time, and maybe you know the refractive issues caused that lines. He had long-term, you know, long-time hypotony, looking about four days or so. He had. Clear drainage. Once again, you can assume that the maybe that was the AC being drained, or who knows, who knows what it is. Oh my god! Yeah. So he actually had hypotony for a long time, and then, after you know, after long term hypotony, you can actually have coil hemorrhage, which actually brings up to the next point. You know, Ben, what do you think? What are the risk factors for this?
0: Right. So. What, what could be tested on and what you should know are advanced age can increase your risk for it. Hypertension, atherosclerosis, diabetes, i.e. being a vascular path can increase your risk, as well as having some kind of bleeding disorder, whether it's a super therapeutic INR, so a nitrogenic cause in this case, or, you know, some other type of disorder that would promote bleeding. Some ocular risk factors include things like high myopia, Decreased scleral rigidity, so if the sclera is more, um, can flex more, or fragility of the corneal vasculature, or perioperative hypertension can increase your risk factor for it. Eric, can you tell us... By the way, if you can hear in the background, we're recording in Aries' home, and he has an adorable, how many months old is Five he? Five months, literally. Five months like. old. Oh, yeah, he's so cute. Um, you can hear him contributing to the podcast in the background That's if cute. you hear that. <laughs> but Ari, like, what exactly happens that causes a superchoridal hemorrhage? Like, What mechanically happens that causes bleeding back there?
1: Yeah, I mean, as you said, as we mentioned, you know, he had a long-term hypotony. So when you have hypotony, that space really becomes more fragile, all the blood vessels in between that. Place uh, space can actually be pulled, and they can cause hemorrhage. And that's actually why old age is an issue. That's why hypertension is an issue. Again, all those, if one of you you break one of those blood vessels in the setting of hypotony, then you're in trouble. Once again, Marfan syndrome is an issue because decreased scleral rigidity and you know fragility of the choroidal vasculature. All these things can cause um, suprachoroidal hemorrhage.
0: I know it could be questioned whether or not myopia or hyperopia is the um, risk factor for superchoroidal hemorrhage. So hopefully that helps you remember that it's myopia because in myopia, your vessels are more in stretch because you have a longer, bigger eye, yeah. as opposed to hyperopia, where they might ask you um, questions about that. In, in that case, it's actually, they're more likely to have choroidal effusions. So just fluid that builds up, like not blood, but fluid that builds up. That might be the topic for another episode, but that's because... Um, in in hyperopic or nanophthalmic eyes, the sclera is more rigid and prevents fluid from leaving the eye. That's a separate issue. So that's they're, they're somewhat similar to procurital hemorrhages and curial effusions, but that's why myopia is a risk for one and hyperopia is a risk for the other. So I, I know another reason we have to really know about this is because sometimes you can see it intraop. So what, what do you do if you see it during surgery, Ari? Yeah, I mean this comes up more
1: um, intra-op. Like if you have <laughs> hey sugar okay hey, sugar. sorry
0: we have another guest to the podcast this is sugar yeah. He's, yeah. he's a very sweet cat that i thought airy was nuzzling my leg but it turned out to be <laughs> a very adorable cat
1: so um so what? yeah a- again this can happen intraoperatively for the most part again anything that can cause hypotenuse can cause this so what would you think about like
0: yeah, you know, I mean, one time, one situation where I always get nervous is if you're doing like a penetrating keratoplasty and the eyes just open to the sky, then uh, the pressure is basically zero, right? I
1: actually have seen this and the patient actually, at that point, started coughing and mm-hmm. then boom, I have seen this enormous amount of blood coming out into the anterior chamber from the posterior, you know, from, from vitreous essentially, from the back. So what do
0: you do? If the choroids Yeah, the cord- <laughs> So what do you do when you see this happen? Like, I mean, you know, and, and just to, to review it, this can't theoretically happen with any intraocular surgery where there's, um, you know, a pressure gradient hypotony that can tear the choroidal vessels. So, like, let's say I see this during cataract surgery or during a, a KP or even yeah. a PK, I mean, or a glaucoma surgery. What do you do, Barry?
1: Yeah, I mean, this comes up, even in OCAPs, they ask, essentially, you want to close the wound and avoid the expulsion of any ocular contents, then put a bunch of visco there just to stabilize everything. And, um, you, you know, you essentially have to close that and make sure that the pressure actually stabilizes and tamponades itself.
0: Yeah, wow. So, you know, coming back to this patient, what did you do for this patient? Like, what are the, you know, generally, what are the steps in management for a hemorrhage?
1: Yeah. I mean, number one, obviously, when he came in, his pressure was 56. So, we wanted to, we loaded him with anything that we can find, you know, with all the ocular medications, we gave him acetazolamide, IV, nothing really helped. Obviously, it wouldn't, because the problem is not really the production or the drainage, it's just supracroidal hemorrhage is so much extensive that's pushing everything forward so one other way to um, fix this is um, you have to bring the patient to the operating room and that's exactly what we did and we did a sclerotomy so we opened up the choroid from the back let the blood out.
0: And what do you mean from the back, from the sclera? From sclera, yeah, I that's see. right. You have wow. to do a, um,
1: yeah, you know, sectoral peritomy or full peritomy, depending where you want to do the sclerotomy. We did it in one region where we believed that the suprachoral hemorrhage was pretty extensive. And the patient actually had immediate relief after we did this. His pressure presumably went, um, you know, significantly down.
0: And then, you know, I mean, that doesn't mean it's, that's it for the patient. Their vision comes back. Because this patient had kissing choroidals, there's always a chance for retinal adhesion. And the prognosis for these patients is not, is is typically not always good, especially when they've had such a high pressure for who knows how long. But I'm glad that you were able to do that for the patient and, you know, at least give him some relief. So yeah, so we did that.
1: Our really, our primary goal was to make sure that he was comfortable. Um, He wasn't in too much pain. We were hoping, of course, for the vision to improve as much as it can, you know, unfortunately for him, his vision actually stayed light perception. And we, you know, this is one month after the surgery and his IOP was five. He had hypotony, but he had no pain whatsoever. Yeah. He was uh, considering everything. He was happy.
0: Yeah. You know, it's, it's a tough case with a tough condition, but you know, these are the important things we need to know about both Marfan syndrome and supercritical hemorrhages. So, to review, Marfan syndrome leads to not only systemic complications but also ocular complications, including keratoconus, iris hypoplasia, which I didn't mention before. Oh, my bad. But keratoconus, importantly, ectopia lentis, and as Ari said, typically superior temporal ectopia lentis. They have a higher rate of strabismus, amblyopia, retinal attachments, and high myopia. In terms of supracroidal hemorrhages, things that increase your risk of having that are, well, you require hypotony to shear the coroidal vessels to cause a supracroidal hemorrhage. And other things that can increase your risks are systemic risk factors for brittle uh, blood vessels like hypertension, diabetes, hyperlipidemia. Advanced age can make your blood vessels more brittle and preoperative hypertension and intraocular inflammation.
1: Having blue eyes is a problem. It's um. Is it really? No, I'm kidding.
0: Oh, okay. <laughs> <laughs> I'm going to leave that in. Uh, and that's all we have this week. If you like what you heard, you can follow us on Twitter at eyes4ears at the number four. And you can uh, find us on our website at eyes4ears.com. If you'd like to support the podcast and a rating or review on iTunes or wherever you find your podcasts is, much appreciated again i'd like to thank dr ari Verder for coming on and spending a sunday afternoon recording this episode with us no happy to do it yeah Uh, thank you man shout out to ari's beautiful son eli and his loving wife who is letting us record in her home while i think she's trying to sleep after 24 and we'll (laughs) see you guys next week bye say bye, bye bye